The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. What I want to do in our last session today is, in a sense, uh, bring together the thoughts that uh, we've already heard expressed. They haven't left me much to say, to be honest. Uh, but I think there are a few things that can be added here and then point to something of the trajectory uh, of the Christian view of sexuality that is something worthwhile holding up before our culture. Uh, There's an old saying, you can't fight something with nothing. You can't fight something with nothing. And for a long time, the church has been Uh, facing this situation, and we haven't had adequate analysis of the situation, so we know where we are, which is what we've been hearing from Peter. And also, we haven't had a sufficiently robust view of our own perspective that we can hold up as something to which the pagan world should aspire to. Don't forget, wherever Christianity encountered paganism, it won. That's why you're a Christian today. Right? So, wherever Christianity went throughout the Greco-Roman world, uh, into Asia, into Europe, don't forget uh, our ancestors were drinking the blood of the dead in uh, northern parts of Europe. Pagans. Christianity won. So, we do actually have the tools to, to win the battle, but we have to know what is in the toolbox, if you will, of the Christian worldview and Scripture so that we have something to offer to the world. It's commonly how do you see in our time amongst many people, even Christians, that the Bible has a fundamentally negative view of sexuality, not helped by what David was showing to us earlier today in the patristic era where Greek philosophy had influenced some of the early church fathers to such a degree that they didn't all have a healthy view of human sexuality. We've taken often our cue, especially the younger generation, from humanism in this regard. One humanistic scholar has suggested, and I quote, when Adam is beguiled by Eve, who has previously been told the truth by the serpent, the eyes of the primal pair are opened and they are as gods, knowing good and evil. They also learn that they are naked and become for the first time sexually guilty. In other terms, sexual intercourse is invented. Now, that has often been the typical view of, and this is repeated by people like Dawkins, that the Bible teaches that somehow sex is a bad thing, it's a negative thing, it's to be avoided, uh, and that Christianity has a very negative view, a negative perspective on human sexuality. It's often been associated, actually, with original sin, so that human sexuality is seen in Christianity as being evil. Innocence, it was suggested, was pre-sex in the Bible, and the fall was sexual in nature. So you can see how they would misunderstand and think that sex is an aspect of our fallenness. And this was a problem even for Augustine. I have to say, David knows this well, that uh, he had difficulties with the idea of human sexuality 
uh, because he was uncomfortable with the physicality, let's just, without making everyone blush, the mechanics of human sexuality. The Hebrew Bible for many of the Greek thinkers, and to Augustine certainly to start with, I'm off my notes already, um, <laughs> was uh, too visceral, too earthy. That's actually initially why Augustine rejected the Christian faith and looked at Manichaeism and Neoplatonism because the Hebrew Bible seemed to him to be too human. And a variety of pagan myths, actually, it's the, actually, interestingly enough, the opposite is true. It's paganism that has associated sexuality with vice and sin. So you have, in pagan myths, Plato's myth of the original androgynous man, that somehow sexuality is a product of something subsequent to creation, whereas in Christian, the Christian Bible, human sexuality, the male and female, is basic to the cosmos. Now, it's certainly the case that in the early life of the Christian church, when Christian missionaries went out to preach the gospel and teach the message of the Bible, the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, felt that the gospel was an attack on their private lives. They felt it was a criticism of their private lives, of the imperial, imperial family, a criticism of Roman law a criticism of the morality of the Greco-Roman world, just the preaching of the gospel. And it was. They were right. The pagan world, for example, the Roman world, forbade adultery to women generally, but premarital and postmarital license was most certainly available to men. All manner of perversions, Peter's mentioned some of them, were practiced in the ancient world. And they had these religious connotations so that when the gospel was preached, it militated against the sexualization of pagan culture. And people were offended, deeply offended. Peter didn't mention, I'm surprised he, he didn't because he usually does, that Nero himself at the time when Paul the Apostle was writing Romans had married two men and uh, emasculated one of them and related to one as a wife and to the other as a husband while he was lighting up Christians as human torches for his gardens. This was in the persecution of Nero. So they felt condemned by it, so that when the gospel met this world of temple prostitution, homosexuality, promiscuity, it felt condemned and it felt criticized. But that does not mean Scripture has a negative view of the subject of sexuality. Just because our culture feels judged and condemned by the declaration of the Christian gospel does not mean that we have a gospel or a revelation that's negative about human sexuality. It's been in vogue for now several centuries for Western intellectuals to proclaim and live their liberation and associate Christianity with the repression of sexuality as something damaging to the human soul. One of my bugbears is the fact that the Puritans, even the term Puritan, Puritanism was the evangelical form of civilization that uh, gave us parliamentary democracy and freedom and built the United States of America. And yet the term Puritan today would be used for repressed souls, usually, 
uh, anemic, bland, repressed souls who are anti-sex, anti-music, anti-poetry, and banned Christmas. And these sorts of ideas out there in, on the radio. And yet actually nothing could be further from the truth about the Puritans. In fact, one of my favorite this is, again, is not in my notes, so I don't know how we're going to get through this. But one, one of my uh, favorite illustrations from Puritan um, uh, history is that in one occasion in the colonies, wife complained to the elders of her church in the Puritan colonies that her husband was not giving her her conjugal rights. And so the elders put the man under church discipline, and when he failed to live up to what he was required to do, was excommunicated. Now, that's not a community that doesn't think human sexuality is important. This is a myth that's been built up by humanistic secular intellectuals that the Christian faith is damaging to the human soul because it represses sexuality, that these are artificial constraints that prevent man from getting back to his nobility, to the primitive, to the, uh, the noble savage, as the revolutionaries in the uh, Romantic period, I think, Scott, would have it. The first truly modern intellectual, probably, was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I can give you his date, 1712 to 1778. And he was a consummate hypocrite, as many of these people turn out to be when you actually examine their lives. He believed himself quite openly to have a unique love for humanity. He saw impulse, intuition, and instinct as absolutely basic and central to all human conduct. Paul Johnson, the historian, points out about Rousseau. He says, Rousseau was first to combine the salient characteristics of the modern Promethean. The assertion of his right to reject the existing order in its entirety and confidence in his capacity to refashion it from the bottom in accordance with principles of his own devising, end quote. <clears throat> A very interesting figure, influential in the framing of the French social contract, but spent half of his time running around amongst the French aristocracy trying to get women to spank him, quite literally. He was not only an authoritarian... He was a totalitarian in his view of the social order, and despite his sexual deviance, his infidelity, his irresponsibility, he abandoned all of his children in infancy, for example. He presumed to teach the Western world about the state and the family and how it should behave. And his influence is still profoundly felt today. Johnson, citing the words of one academic in respect of Rousseau as this free spirit of the modern age, shows how self-deluded many of these so-called prophets are. This is what this one academic noted, and I quote, He, Rousseau, that is, was a masochist, exhibitionist, neurasthenic, hypochondriac, onanist, latent homosexual, afflicted by the typical urge for repeated displacements, incapable of normal parental affection, incipient paranoiac, narcissistic introvert rendered unsocial by his illness, filled with guilt feelings, pathological timidity, a kleptomaniac, infantilist, irritable, and miserly. Now, uh, uh, I would recommend you get uh, Paul Johnson's book, The Intellectuals, 
the intellectuals, in which he looks at a series of Western intellectuals who've had a profound influence on our culture and what their lives were actually like. This isn't evangelical Christians writing here. Now, such are these heroes of modern libertinism. The modern intellectual, though, could not be more wrong in seeing the biblical vision of human sexuality as repressive and damaging. In fact, on the contrary, it could be said to be both the mystery and key to the cosmos. Now, let's take a few moments to look at God's being and the biblical perspective. The purpose of the seventh commandment in God's law, thou shalt not commit adultery, has many, many implications. But its major purpose is to protect marriage and set apart human sexuality as sacred, as designed by God, as we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, biblical law, it's very important, biblical morality begins with the premise of human subjection to God and His purpose and intention. That's how it begins. So, you'll always be at odds with God's Word if we do not start from the biblical premise that we are made by God and for God, and that we are created in subjection to God. That's how we're made. St. Paul actually tells us in Ephesians 5 about the nature of this submission. I'm going to read you a few verses from Ephesians 5, verse 21 through 24. He says this, "'Submit yourselves to one another in the fear of God.'" Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's how it starts. Now, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not because he's better, not because he's smarter, not because he's stronger. He may be none of those things. As to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So, mutual submission, submitting to to one another in love, and submitting to one another in the Lord is an outgrowth simply of our submission to God. This is how the cosmos works in the Bible. This is why it has order and structure and distinctions. All requirements of submission in the Bible, submission to government, submission to elders, submission of children to parents, wives and husbands, and so on and so forth, are governed by this prior and necessary submission of all things to God, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that means in a fallen world, unlike the modern intellectual, our feelings, instincts, impulses, desires are not to be given free reign because they are not primary in defining and expressing human sexuality. You see, the Bible tells us that the world in which we presently live is fallen, which means it cannot give us law. God has to give us law. There's a law above nature, it comes from God. Because our nature being fallen means that if you follow your instincts and your impulses, well, you think about what some of your impulses and instincts are at different times in your life. If you followed them all out, where would you be today? 
Marriage itself is not based primarily on a feeling, but rather on God's Word, and it becomes a form of robbery where people use each other when feelings are paramount, because then people will be in a relationship or in a marriage relationship while the feelings that they want last, and then will abandon a marriage if they feel there's nothing left to be gained. So marriage has to be based on Christian sexual ethics, have to be based on more than our feelings, our impulses, our instincts. There has to be something more serious and significant at the basis of human sexual relationships. If human sexuality is merely a matter of personal choice and feeling, we actually depersonalize others. Because a purely personal tie has an impersonal view of other people. A man or a woman who is concerned only with their personal considerations does not consider the personal considerations of the other person. Therefore, they are depersonalizing the other. Mutual exploitation and then self-pity dominate the relationship of men and women where personal self-gratification and anarchic liberty from all of God's law is the basis of the relationship. So seen cosmologically, as Peter Jones would always like to see things, St. Paul is actually teaching that the whole universe is oriented around submission to God and His authority in order for human freedom and flourishing to take place. And it's only on that principle of submission to God that we can actually discover our true humanity. This is what Paul, this is what the Bible teaches us. So, for example, the authority of the husband in marriage the marriage relationship, is to be exercised for the benefit, blessing, health, and joy of his wife and family. It is not to serve himself. <clears throat> Didn't Jesus say it's more blessed to give than to receive? You see, in mutual service, people find life and freedom under God. Outside of that, all you have is tyranny and misery. So, the remarkable thing in Scripture is that the modern intellectual wants to see freedom and liberty as a libertine, libertarianism away from God and His law. The Bible sees liberty and freedom as submission to God. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. So true freedom, true liberty, <clears throat> you're always a slave to something. So you cannot serve two masters, Jesus says. So you'll either hate the one and love the other. The Bible actually says we are the servants or the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when the primacy of God's Word is established in people's lives, then we can speak of voluntary submission to it as happiness and fulfillment. When you try and speak to the non-believer about such a thing, they cannot understand what you're talking about. The alternative to God's law, then, and submission to God is not freedom. The alternative to it is tyranny and the self-serving world of exploitation, mutual exploitation, where the powerful, somebody who's got the advantage, exploits somebody else. That's the alternative to a biblical view of submission. 
submit to God and one to another in the Lord, or exploitation. To rebel against God's order then in marriage and sexual relationships is to fight God's ordering and differentiating of all things. But there's more here. God's law is not something arbitrary. He thinks, well, I need some rules for these people. What shall I come up with? That's as often how we think of the law of God is that God's created the world, and now I've got to find, think up Ten Commandments, keep it short. They can only remember ten. What, what can I, what, what would be good guideline? Now, that's not, how, that's not how the Bible comes to us. God's Word, God's law is an aspect of His character and His nature. It's an aspect of who God is in Himself. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Which is to say, Paul tells us that God is the Father of all families in heaven and earth. Quite literally, He's the Father of all fatherhoods, Paul is saying. And as such, the family derives its name and nature from God Himself. Family isn't some arbitrary social expedient that God needed to sort of regulate a messy world. We actually heard David talk about the family as an icon of the Trinity. One social commentator is very helpful at this point. It says, the name and nature of all earthly relationships is derived from the triune God, so that there is no law, no society, no relationship, no justice, no structure, no design, no meaning apart from God. And all these aspects and relationships of society are types of that which exists in the Godhead. They are types of that which exists in the Godhead. Now, pagan or humanistic cosmology, as we've been hearing, denies all things are defined and differentiated and ordered by God, who is distinct from His creation. It's concerned to deny that. Paganism, that is anti-Christianity, holds to the sameness or identity of all things because nature is all there is. One of the things that it's important to remember when people speak of spirits and gods and so on and so forth, and very often I've been involved in debates on the existence of God where the professor is opened by saying, defining his atheism by saying that he's he's an atheist with respect to Zeus and uh, with respect to Aphrodite or Diana or some other god, and he's also an atheist with respect to my god as well. He just adds one more, I'm an atheist with respect to this god as well. And the fundamental mistake there, and it's an elementary one, I'm always amazed that any so-called professor of philosophy could make it, is that all of those gods are stationed inside of nature. They're an aspect of nature and creation. They come up from the chaos. They are stationed inside the universe. And as an aspect of nature... 
any apparent differences or distinctions in creation are less than fully real because ultimate reality is being or non-being. So don't forget in Hinduism and Buddhism, which Peter's touched on, the goal of existence is to escape the self, is to be absorbed into the oneness of being. So you would, if you got to nirvana, you wouldn't go, yes, made it. Because there is no self. At that point, your oneness with the cosmos is complete. The illusion of self-identity, of differentiation, is gone. So nobody says, yes, I made it to Brahman. Being or non-being is an impersonal idea about reality. This is why sexual ethics in paganism are depersonalizing. The most descriptive term for this is pantheism or oneism, and it's totally logical that we would then expect the breakdown of the distinction between good and evil, male and female, the social order and in the development of culture, and that we'd see this idealizing of androgyny and homosexuality, as Peter has been pointing out. So just as the nature of the God of Scripture, who defines the family, is reflected in heterosexual marriage, so the divine concept or the divine per se in paganism is reflected in the the androgyny and homoeroticism we see in this pagan order. Anti-Christianity, then, will always seek to break down as far as is possible these distinctions and seek to create a a reality based on monism. Now, the Christian view of sexuality, the biblical view of, of sexuality, confronts this directly. Paul refers to heterosexual marriage, the joining of the two who become one, in Genesis 2.24, as a mystery. In Ephesians 5, 32. It's a mystery. So if people are interested in mystery, well, you can tell them, I, I want to tell you about a mystery. I'll tell you a mystery. This is the mystery of human sexuality in the creation. Paul tells it, it's a mystery. Now, this isn't a reference to esoteric mysticism. He's saying here is a deep truth, a key to understanding the nature of reality, and its many implications. Paul notes that the union of male and female reflects Christ and the relationship to his church. Now, there's a mystery. Think for a moment. We are many in here, in this room. We're many people. And yet, we are described as being one in Jesus Christ. Christ is one with his Father, and we are united to God in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a mystery. The mystery is stated by our Lord in John 17, 21, where Jesus asks in prayer, he says this, that they all may be one as you are in me and I you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's something about the mystery of Christian human sexuality, biblical sexuality, as it reflects Christ and the church, that also reflects the Godhead, that will make people believe or help people believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? There is something about the relationship between us and Christ in the church and between the biblical idea of marriage, human sexuality, and people coming to a recognition that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We have here stated the mystery of the church in Christ that reflects heterosexual marriage and the mystery of the Godhead. You are united to God in Jesus Christ. Do you become divine when that happens? If you're a Christian, you are in Christ, are you now God? You're a partaker of the divine nature, Peter says. But you're not God. The distinction between divinity and humanity is not collapsed. The human and the defined distinction remains intact. In marriage, man and woman come together, they're joined as one. You don't become androgynous when you get married, do you? You don't lose femininity and masculinity. You don't lose your own identity in marriage. And this is where it gets marvelous and mysterious, difficult to think about. Because in God himself, and Augustine points this out in his confessions, actually, God is both one and many. Equally ultimate. You see, actually, the whole story of human philosophy has been a conflict, really, between is the reality one or is it many? Even in the world as we understand, not, I'm not now talking about the twoist, oneist question, is the world one or many? Is at root everything one? Or is there many? Now, if you haven't got God, what happens in every other area of reality is these things, everything collapses into oneness. In God, you see, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are exhaustively representative of each other. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you remember when he's asked, show us the Father? That will be enough for us. Jesus says, haven't I been among you all this time and you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father, for I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then Jesus says, I'm going to send you one like unto myself, the Comforter, the Paraclete. He will take what is mine, and he will make it known to you. So the person of God, the Holy Spirit, is exhaustively representational of who God is. They are all God. There is one God, and yet there are three persons in this divine community, the divine family. So God is both one and many. There is distinction or differentiation of persons within his being that is real and essential, but there is also unity in the interpenetration of the community, of the Trinity, in relationship. We see this in the Gospel of John, the beginning of John's Gospel, that the Word is God and the Word is with God. How can he be both? Have you asked yourself the question? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, plurality, and the Word was God, unity. It's not just the distinction between the Creator and the creation that we have to maintain. It's the distinction within the being of God himself 
that is the foundation for our understanding of human sexuality. It's not sameness that's joined. It's difference that comes together in unity. And in the created order, we see a reflected unity and plurality in the harmony of things in God's order without the collapse of diversity into an undifferentiated unity. So there are real distinctions. That is, there's male and female. There's animal, vegetable, and mineral. These are distinctions that are real, that are not a veil of illusion. They're real distinctions that God has established. And yet, we're, so we're all human beings here, but you look around this room, look at the diversity amidst the unity. The worldview of paganism, you see, and this is where, this is the beauty and the mystery. The worldview of paganism is productive of monotony. Monotony. Mono, one, monism, monotony, androgyny, the sameness, the collapsing of these distinctions, homosexuality, and ugliness. Ethical and aesthetic ugliness, sameness. Imagine if all of us today looked the same. If our gifts and proclivities and so forth were the same, undifferentiated. What a boring and largely ugly world we would be in a, a world of utter monotony. It's not a world of harmony, diversity, heterosexuality, and thereby beauty. And this is the irony of the fact that they try and claim the word diversity on the left. They don't believe in it. They're oneists, as Peter's been saying. They want to stamp out true diversity and distinction. You see, because oneism denies these real distinctions, it posits this oneness and sameness of all things. You cannot have harmony and beauty where life and reality is the joining of identity, sameness. Let me give you an illustration. I wasn't going to do this, but see, this is a piano, which Peter plays beautifully. Now, if I were to sit down and play you a song and it... You wouldn't be here long. It's one note. It's sameness. It's monotonous. It's not harmonious. But if you join the notes together, about ten, you have harmony because you have unity in diversity. Therefore, there is beauty. And that's the mystery. I could sit down now, but I've got a few more things I want to say. Put another way, paganism joins what God has separated and separates what God has joined. Paganism joins what God has separated and separates what God has joined. It joins what God has separated in terms of homosexuality, bestiality. God has distinguished, made distinctions there that are violated. But it also separates what God has joined, specifically sex and marriage, familial ties, attributes of masculinity and femininity. It seeks to remove those. It's subversive in every area. 
This is why for biblical law, for a man to wear long hair is described as an abomination. It's effeminacy. Or for a woman to have a shaved head as a style and wear the garb of a man, Scripture says, is detestable, to behave like a man. Why is that? You ever read those pesky verses? Because it's an attempt to separate what God has joined. To violate the distinctions that God has made. And to join what God has separated. To do both. And this can even be reflected in clothing and appearance. So it's no mistake that much modern fashion, which has been dominated today by the homosexualists, it idealizes androgyny. So that the clothing lines... Women are designed to look like men and men like women. You see some teenage boys walking down the street these days in their little tight little panties and little crop t-shirt. Is that a girl or a boy? Am I wrong? Right? This is because actually homosexual styles, camp, dominates the fashion industry. So you have to go to a gentleman's store to look like a real gentleman. Unisex styles, you see. This is a religious goal of, under, of, of denying the distinctions God has placed in creation and to try and create a neutral, equalized world. And to violate these distinctions, the Bible says, is lasciviousness or uncleanness in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. And it's for these reasons that we can point to marriage and biblical sexuality as the mystery of and key to the cosmos. The, 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 the key that philosophers have been searching for since Plato was trying to understand unity and diversity. And the world keeps collapsing into one. Because ultimate reality, God is unity and diversity in himself. Distinction within the being of God. Now, this is a mystery. Now, this is, as, this is as mysterious as it gets. And it's the key to understanding human sexuality and the nature of creation. Do you know the word university means unity and diversity? Because under God, all these different fields of study found their unity amidst their diversity and distinction. And all the different subject matter. It's for this reason, inherent in God's nature, this unity and diversity, that in the created order we have life that is beautiful, harmonious. We have musicality, poetry, discovery, community, personality. You can't have personality in a monistic, oneist worldview, because reality is an ultimate, impersonal, bare, blank existence. The goal of most Eastern religions is unconsciousness. Somebody was telling me about, uh, just in the, in the break, about a friend of theirs who's gone out to some ashram in India to do some Christianized meditation, who is learning to sit for eight hours in total silence. That's hell. If you think about it, you see, heaven is the perfection of community, of unity and diversity. That's what heaven is. Hell is total isolation of the self. 
from God and others. No community in hell. I've heard people say to me, oh, if my mates are going to hell, I'm going to go there to party. No, you won't be partying. It is existentialism is hell, actually. The isolated self. And an isolated self is ultimate unconsciousness. How do you know you're a self? How do you know your own personal identity, that you are you? It's because you know that there, you are surrounded by that which isn't you. You're not the person next to you. You're not the ceiling. You're not the chair. You're not the floor. You're not your, the immediacy of your environment. You are aware of the not-self. Hell is total isolation from God and others. And some people want a hell on earth. The person has no real value in this worldview because community is an illusion and exploitation over and against service makes life a living hell. And that's why when people go into a marriage or a relationship where the purpose is not mutual service of God, they can turn their own lives into a living hell because they're constantly at war with each other because it's about self-gratification, not serving God together. I'll come to that in just a moment. It's in this context that we can appreciate and celebrate the laws of God and joyfully and willingly submit to them, finding our joy and happiness. So, you know, you open up Scripture and you read that sodomy is prohibited and bestiality and incest and lesbianism and fornication and adultery and prostitution, rape, orgies, transvestite behavior, transsexual confusion, pedophilia, lasciviousness, in which you can include pornography. All these sexual practices are condemned because they join what God has separated or separate what God has joined and destroy the beauty of the image of God in man. And create a world of ugliness that tends toward hell. So we have something incredible to offer a pagan world. All deviant forms of sexual practice are thereby acts of subversion. Francis Schaeffer noted this with respect to homosexuality. He says some forms of homosexuality today are not just homosexuality, but a philosophical expression. One must have understanding for the real homophile's problem, but much modern homosexuality is an expression of the current denial of antithesis, of difference. It has led in this case to an obliteration of the distinction between man and woman, so the male and female as complementary partners are finished. Now, the calling that we have in the midst of that is to model this kingdom life. And here I just want to link marriage and eschatology. All of Scripture makes clear from Genesis 1 that marital chastity is the gold standard for human sexuality. Violations of this are recorded in the Bible. We do read certain instances of polygamy, and it's tolerated in certain individuals. But such aberrations are never seen as God's best, nor God's original intention, which is reaffirmed by the Lord Jesus. He says it was not this way from the beginning. However, scriptures teach a lot more than the idea that we are to live with some unhappy, pragmatic acceptance of monogamy. 
which is the way some Christians approach it. Well, it's a Christian duty, I guess, to be faithful. That's not going to inspire anyone to faithfulness. Rather, heterosexual marital monogamy is presented in Scripture not as impoverishing life, but as a spring of joy and health to a person's very being. If you have a Bible, uh, look with me to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 5. Just going to read a few verses here. Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Drink waters out of your own cistern, and running waters out of your own well. Let them be only your own and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her be as a loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. May you be ravished always with her love. And why will you, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be held with the cords of his sins. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. See, the Proverbs doesn't tell you that, well, just do this for pragmatic reasons. It tells us this is the way of life. You're to rejoice and celebrate this, and this is the way of death. Song of Solomon is a celebration of the joy of sexual intimacy in marriage, whilst adultery in Proverbs 6 and 7 is described as a devouring fire which leads to death and ruin. The New Testament restates biblical law forbidding all non-marital relations for the sake of the Greek and Roman converts. Because you had all of these people from this pagan culture coming into the church That's why you read these things in Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth and the book of Acts and in Romans, because the Greco-Roman world, these converts had to be instructed in biblical law in terms of Christian morality. And it's not to provide them with a list of rules to rob them of their happiness. That's not why they'd become Christians. They weren't happy in their paganism. There is a reason why we have the expression, miserable sinner, because in the end, the guilt and the burden of guilt which comes with the way of, uh, of sin as a lifestyle brings misery. It's not a list of rules then to rob people of their happiness, but reflecting the character of God and the community of the Trinity, the purpose is to create a familial society in which stability, love, well-being, and joy are maximized for all members. That's the purpose of it. The goal of God's guidance, God's law for human sexuality is to create a family-based society that allows everyone to flourish in a maximal way. This is why the central offense in the Bible is to assault the family by adultery or homosexuality or frivolous, groundless divorce, rape, fornication, incest. These are offenses or even crimes that are attended with serious sanctions because they attack the image of God and the health of the society. And so until we see the family as the exclusive context for sexual intimacy reestablished, we will continue to see sexual promiscuity, infidelity, and deviance, and so forth. We won't see those things as a serious threat to society. They'll be seen as a form of entertainment. 
which is exactly how uh, the entertainment industry uh, paints the picture of sexual license, sexual liberty. It is, it, it is its true freedom, it's entertaining, it's fun, and that the really boring people are those who are Christians and involved in Christian marriage. They're miserable. Think about it. When do you ever see really a good model of a father, mother, healthy family in modern sitcoms? No, fathers are always portrayed as buffoons, idiots, losers, wasters. None of this is to suggest, of course, that God's kingdom ideal is easy to accomplish. I've been married 15 years. I know I don't look anywhere near old enough. You're shocked. (laughs) But marriage doesn't mean that marriage is easy. You don't become a Christian and sail through marriage on a bed of proverbial roses. Nonetheless, the purpose of godly marriage is for us to model a calling to the world as a way of life that is blessing and joy. That's what we're modeling. Of course, there are numerous studies which show that the health and well-being and success of children, the longevity of our lives, our health, survival of society is directly tied to marriage and the the flourishing of a monogamous family unit. Study after study has shown that. But we don't need to simply appeal to sociological factors to justify the Christian ideal. One leading scholar in biblical law, Jonathan Burnside, makes the point that in a fallen world, many relationships are less than perfect because we're sinners, all of us. So we don't, uh, human sexuality is not expressed through perfect relationships when you become a Christian. There is no perfection in any marriage. Scripture recognizes this. And Burnside argues that Jesus in Mark, I'm just going to turn to one more scripture. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Where am I? Book of Acts. In Mark, chapter 10, let's read verses 2 through 9. The Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And they answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. Jesus answered and said to them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, man shall leave, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. Now, Burnside actually argues here, I think very helpfully, that Jesus appears to make in this passage a distinction between what is civil legality and kingdom morality. That is to say, what may be permissible under certain circumstances in law and what the morality for God's kingdom people is to be. Where there is hardness of heart, divorce as a social reality is inevitable and legally permissible, 
But since it's an undoing of God's work, it stands in opposition to Jesus' kingdom, which seeks to work restoration of God's creative intention. That is, Jesus seems to expect that where the kingdom of God is preached and the work of the Spirit is in evidence, it's now possible to attain to the purpose of the Creator with respect to marriage and sexuality. Prior to Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that expectation wasn't there. Now in Jesus Christ, there is a new possibility that divorce might even become unnecessary where people live in terms of God's Word. Amongst God's called-out people, then, divorce may be legal in some circumstances, but it becomes unnecessary because of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to come back to divorce in just a moment because I am going to anticipate a couple of questions. But in Mark 10, Jesus obviously abolishes polygamy. But he's not annulling the law. What Jesus does in dealing with this, he's actually dealing with Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, is to emphasize the importance of the doctrine of creation when you interpret the law. So he's saying when you interpret God's law, you have to take the whole sweep of the law right back from the beginning of creation. He says in the beginning, what was God's intention? To get the full meaning of the law, Jesus says, you have to go back to creation. So Burnside notes, with respect to Jesus' interpretation of the law in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and I quote, the sermon is not new law, as is sometimes thought, but a description of life in the kingdom of God. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're reading what the kingdom of God looks like. And what does Jesus call it? He says, this is the blessed life. Do you know that word there in Greek, makarios, makarioi, means happy. So in the mystery of human sexuality, of the creator-creature distinction, of God's way of kingdom life, Jesus says is blessedness and joy. That's his exposition of God's law, that this is the way of joy and life. This is the way of the kingdom of God. His words describe then the purpose of the law and the way in which people will behave in God's kingdom, which has now come. Now, this is not to say that it's never right to divorce. And this is an area where Christians haven't always distinguished themselves in recent decades with, with divorcing for less than biblical reasons. But we are called to a higher standard so that unbelievers are attracted to the kingdom of God and see the beauty of God's plan for marriage and human sexuality. Now, Jesus makes clear in Matthew 5, 31 through 32, that divorce is legally and morally appropriate in, in cases of pornea, that's marital unfaithfulness. Paul shows us as well that in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 15, that desertion is also moral grounds for divorce. The term pornea is used in the New Testament as, a, as an umbrella term. That covers all types of unlawful sexual activity and arguably various other forms of delinquency and uncleanness. And so Burnside writes, and I quote, it's possible for a disciple of Jesus to divorce in a way that is morally right, namely when the other party has committed pornea. The spouse who is not responsible for the breakup can remarry, end quote. Now this seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture. 
Those who divorce legally, though, for reasons other than porneia and desertion, and legally remarry, Jesus is saying, don't do so morally. They commit adultery. So the, the point there is that the perpetrator of porneia, desertion, uncleanness, unfaithfulness in a marriage is not able to benefit from their activity. They're not able just to contract out a new, a new marriage without actually falling afoul of God's moral condemnation of the act. The overall point is that Jesus, in dealing with this problem, appeals all the way back to creation, to the Eden account in the, uh, beyond the law of Moses for a proper interpretation of marriage and sexuality of a kingdom lifestyle that will reveal the beauty of the Creator's purpose. Where... When people do live in terms of the gospel, both partners, and in terms of the Spirit of God, divorce will become unnecessary. Marriage, then, is a calling. David mentioned that um, singleness is important and can be a calling. I think that very often we don't emphasize marriage as a calling. That it's a kingdom calling. In the Christian view, it is a kingdom calling. Marriage and sex, therefore, are not an end in themselves for human relationships, even though it feels like that when you're 18. Okay? When you go back to creation to interpret the law of God, you see that the purpose of marriage includes our sexuality, But it is not exhausted by that. The purpose, when you go back to creation in the Garden of Eden, shows that marriage, sexuality, and procreation are put in the context of of man's work and service for God in the created order. To have dominion over all things. There is a mutual dependence in service, together in service, of a calling greater than themselves and their own personal interests. That's one of the things that can keep a marriage together, is that when we see that the marriage covenant is a calling in Jesus Christ to model to the world the beauty of God's character and nature, to live that then out as together we serve the purposes of the kingdom of God. And then it's not all about me. It's not then self-centered. It's about mutual dependence and together serving the kingdom of God. Christian marriage is a kingdom work, a godly work. And therefore, it is eschatological in that it reflects both the relationship of Christ to His church and the purpose of creation, harmony, beauty, faithfulness, community that we model to the world. It's our vocation in Jesus Christ. In my last minute, I want to conclude with the purpose of the law and gospel in our lives, then. In God's grace is restoration and renewal of a broken world. And our brokenness, because we're all sinners. And as sinners, in a world of brokenness, in a world of non-marital sexual activity that is a departure from God's intended purpose. We have a 
message of reconciliation, restoration, and renewal to bring to the world as well. And this is what appealed to the pagan world. This is why Christianity defeated paganism wherever it went, wherever it went because it promised not the uh, annihilation of the self, not escape from the world, but living in it in terms of reconciliation with God. Now, this means that although God's law applies to everyone, he doesn't expect that the godly are going to live as the, go- uh, the ungodly will live as the godly do. People come into our churches from all kinds of godless backgrounds and relationships, and our task is to be agents of restoration and renewal. Some men and women have spent their time in marriage doing wickedness to each other, departing from their duties to each other. Some of us may have been struggling in such relationships. We might be victims of fornication and desertion and uncleanness in our own marriages or relationships, past or present. Psalm 32 is a prayer of praise and confession which celebrates the joy and blessedness of forgiveness. We're forgiven when we come with integrity and humility to God and confess our sins and the burden is lifted, our guilt is removed, even when certain temporal consequences of sin remain in our lives. King David had to deal with temporal consequences of sin remaining, and he speaks in that psalm about the destructive nature of guilt and unconfessed sin that even made his physical health deteriorate until he confessed it and repented of it and found forgiveness and renewal and mercy. In verse 7 and 8 of Psalm 32, we're told that really without God, we're like unruly animals. Our sin is irrational, but we are restored to God by confession. Uh, R.J. Rashduni has written, instead of storing up wrath by impenitence, we, by confession, enter into the joy and freedom of grace. Our life in Christ then gives us the privilege of confession as a step in the revocation of sin and death into the life of a confessing faith in the service of Christ's kingdom. Now, most of us here are probably Protestants, so we don't, we're nervous about the doctrine of confession. But confession is absolutely critical to the Christian life. Don't meander and struggle your wage your way through sin and guilt on your own. James says, St. James says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we are a royal priesthood, the Bible says, which means we confess our sins one to another, including our sexual sins. We confess our sexual sins one to another, maybe to a pastor, maybe to an elder, a deacon, a friend in the life of the church, as a discipline of the Christian life so that we can walk from guilt into the renewed life of the kingdom of God as free men and women. And in this way, we point the whole world to the kingdom of God by confession and restoration to a life that's free from guilt 
which holds us down, and then we are able to live in terms of the kingdom of God, which is attractive to the world. So that the world, so that as Jesus' prayer can become a reality in our lives, that as they see our oneness with God and with each other, the world's going to want to know, and they will know actually that we are his disciples. And that's the way we shall overcome oneism. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.